0: This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the historian Sarah Churchwell about her new book, Behold America, The Entangled History of America First in the American Dream. The two phrases, Sarah, are much in the news these days, but where do they come from and what do they mean? Neither phrase shows up in the nation's founding documents or anywhere in the writings of Jefferson, Hamilton, Lincoln, Herman Melville, Whitman, or Mark Twain. Around 1900, they show up in what you call the national imaginary, invested with meanings very different from the ones they now carry. Perhaps you can begin in 1900 and tell us the story of the two phrases, making the hundred-year journey from Teddy Roosevelt to Donald J. Trump.
1: <laughs> well, uh, that is a, a long journey, as you uh, as you imply. Um, yes, the uh, the phrase the American Dream." Um, you know as a as a way to talk about a national value system right i mean there are different kinds of of uses of the phrase american dream to you know they would say the american dream of the transcontinental railroad or the american dream of naval conquest so it's not that the phrase never appears but it's quite specific but to but to express a kind of general collective national value system um it really starts to emerge Around 1900, as you said, and you start to see it crop up in, uh, in, in newspapers and magazines in the, in the cultural conversation. And what's really striking about these early uses of the American dream is that they don't describe a national value system that we might, uh, expect them to. And the, the article that you allude to, uh, from 1900 is from the New York Post. And, um, and what it said was that, um, the greatest risk to every republic came not from discontented soldiers, right? Not from the mob, but it said from discontented multimillionaires, that discontented multimillionaires would destroy the republic because they're not content with a position of equality. They want to be treated as a special category. And the New York Post in 1900 said that to treat multimillionaires as a special category to let them have special rules, he sa- it said that would be the end of the American dream. So, you know, my view is that most people today would probably think that multimillionaires represent the culmination of the American dream, the realization of the American dream. But here, you know, the New York Post is saying exactly the opposite, that uh, to let multimillionaires have special privileges is the end of the American dream because the American dream is about democracy. It's about equality. Uh, and egalitarianism, indeed. And, and when you look at the early uses of the American dream um, in the first decades of the 20th century, you see that meaning over and over again. When they were talking about the American dream, they were talking about um, how to protect Democracy, opportunity, it's certainly about individual opportunity, but it's about protecting individual opportunity from the, the kind of rampaging uh, monopoly capitalism that was on the rise at the time. And they said that if you let that kind of rampant and, and specifically monopolistic capitalism take hold, that will destroy the American dream of equality, of opportunity for all, because it will protect only opportunity for the few. So as you suggested, you know, that's where Teddy Roosevelt comes in, um, you know, to, to break the trusts, to say that this is, and to do that in the name of republicanism, right? To say that in the name of small businesses, we must bust the trusts, because the trusts are what it, are creating rampant inequality. And um, and that inequality is what will jeopardize the American dream of democracy, of justice, and of uh, equality. And and so really what happens is that that phrase American dream um, in the journey over the next century, it basically flips its popular meaning. So that, of course, today we tend to use it to mean uh, a way to talk about individuals, uh, you know, individuals, economic aspiration about upward social mobility, about um, individual prosperity or uh, economic ambition, um, but they used it to talk about how to protect the opportunity of all from the greed of the few.
0: So it starts out uh, 1900 or thereabouts as a political mm. dream. Like, like, uh, America setting an example of, of virtue of, of Reaching for the good life for all present. <laughs> and it's a political idea. And by the end of, of the where we are now, it's become an economic yeah, idea. That's
1: exactly right. And that political idea, I mean, one way to, to distinguish it, since we do use the phrase to mean different things, is to think about what used to be called the American creed. Right and the American Creed are is those founding principles um, of of liberty, justice for all, if you like, um, and um, and of uh, you know democratic self government. Those kinds of you know basic American core principles. And and they were describing that as an American dream because they realized that it hadn't been realized. I mean, they were not you know they were not saying that democracy had been perfected um, by any stretch and equality had not been achieved.
0: No, but it's the it's the aspiration. It's the the holding of the ideal and the struggling to reach for it even though one knows one is never going to get all the way to the wall
1: precisely and that that, you know it's that it's that idea. browning says you know man's reach must exceed his grasp else what's a heaven for you can't do better unless you reach farther you can't just say oh this is what we can accomplish it is about having higher aspirations and pushing your society you know toward a more perfect union it's always toward a more perfect union and that was the american dream and economics played its role in that but it was not uh it was not the sole factor
0: no uh, yes it's more about personal development, about about education, uh, uh, you know, an education not as an adjunct to making more money in the world, but as, as to fulfilling one's self, one's own dream of expansion and self-realization.
1: Yeah, and your capacities, right? I mean, I always think about... When I think about the American dream, I think about the, the phrases that Scott Fitzgerald uses in The Great Gatsby when, you know, and Jay Gatsby is that kind of, you know, he's very much an emblematic American, right? He kind of almost stands in as an allegory for America itself. And that and his tragedy, which Fitzgerald certainly saw as the tragedy of America, was that, you know, this nation or this man, you could have what he calls the tremendous capacity for hope. And this romantic readiness and this incredible generosity of spirit, and then that can get corrupted into mere materialism, into simply chasing a big house or a big car. And I always think about that phrase, the capacity for hope, that that it was about America's capaciousness, um, that that we that we wanted to to we it was an idealistic vision of trying to do better, and that's what the American dream was supposed to be. And you know, the, the, the historian who eventually popularized the phrase and made it a, a catchphrase, which wasn't until the 1930s, was an historian called James Shuslow Adams. Um, and in 1931, he wrote about the American dream, uh, and said, at that point, again, words that, that, you know, really could, uh, could be describing today. He said that America's supposed to dream of more than just having the newest car or the nicest house um that you were supposed to dream you know bigger spiritual dreams and that if America didn't get better dreams then we were going to go spiritually bankrupt and if we went spiritually bankrupt America would just become an up to date an up to date department store uh,
0: well to my mind that's where we are now but the <laughs> but let's go back up to your other phrase America first and you find that beginning to appear in in the national imaginary and by national imaginary you mean the way it comes up in conversation among newspaper editors and society lunches It's part of the common conversation it's not the particularly the major authors it, it's the general usage and so your book you take the two the evolution of the two ideas two phrases in in uh, running parallel so Let's go back to 1900 with the phrase America first.
1: Yeah. So America First is a much older phrase than most people think it is. Um most people uh, identify its origins with Charles Lindbergh and the America First movement of 1940 and 1941 to keep America out of the Second World War. But in fact, you can find it used as a Republican campaign slogan as early as the 1880s. And um and it was part of a slogan um that was a, that was a larger longer slogan rather that was um America First Last and all the time. And and this was um it partly emerged as a response to the great waves of immigration, um, at the turn of the century and, um, and indeed to earlier, uh, waves of immigration in the, in the 1840s uh, and 1850s is when the, these ideas start to take place. And, and America first, um, had a kind of double-edged, uh, uh, vision or approach. I mean, you could use it, uh, one of two ways. Um, When it was first popularized was actually, I mean, as I say, it was kind of used as a campaign slogan here and there, but um, it first became a national catchphrase when Woodrow Wilson used it in 1915 to talk about American neutrality in the First World War. But he was actually using it to try to. Um, in a in a complex way to try to articulate a kind of assimilationist inclusive idea of America, in which these groups of recent immigrants who would have divided loyalties during the First World War, if you think about, uh, you know, some of the largest groups of, of immigrants in the late 19th century were coming from. This is no surprise, right? From Ireland, from Germany, and from Italy well the irish you the know, newly arrived irish americans and newly arrived german americans are going to have very different sides uh, and very different attitudes to a conflict between the british empire and the german empire and so wilson was actually trying to say something like america first don't think about your loyalties to the countries you've left behind but let's create an an uh, assimilationist vision of america in which all of these uh in which all of these immigrant communities put America first. Um, so it's it's not as isolationist as it sounds on the face of it. It's not what Wilson was doing, but it was taken up in the name of isolationism very, very quickly. And it became an explicitly anti-immigrant slogan uh, very fast. People were worried about these waves of immigration and um, America first became a way of uh, articulating a particular vision of American identity, one that was explicitly white Christian, um, and that was, you know, really tied to the older settlers. Um, indeed, what they referred to confusingly as Native Americans, um, but they weren't talking about indigenous peoples. They were talking about their early settler, uh, communities. And, um, and that was their vision of America first. And, and, um, and it was, um, taken up by explicitly xenophobic, uh, groups and platforms very quickly.
0: Well, can you remember the uh Harding's campaign in I mean the in 1920 his his campaign motto is is America first and he, it's a Yeah, and he goes he says to safeguard America first, stabilize America first, prosper America first, think of America first, exalt America first, live And revere America for, live for and revere America for, I mean, it sounds like Trump, (laughs) this week at the UN.
1: Doesn't it? <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, you, one of the one of the things about America First as a slogan is that it was so it was Wilson's campaign slogan in 1916. He of course was a Democrat, but it was also his Republican opponent's slogan. So the so both candidates were running on the on an America First platform in 1916. Then, as you say, Harding ran on that platform in in 1920. Um, in between, America First was uh, the phrase that was invoked. In order to keep America out of the League of Nations and to convince um, Congress not to ratify the Treaty of Versailles. Um, so it was a very, very prominent part of the political conversation. And indeed, Calvin Coolidge in 1924 also ran uh, on a slogan of America first. So it was sort of everywhere in the political conversation. But um but it was also then very quickly associated with protectionism and indeed, again, one hears the echoes of Trump very, very strongly Um in, in fact, uh, they were in, around, again, around these debates about joining the League of Nations, they started promoting something they called economic nationalism in the name of America first. And economic nationalism is protectionism. Um, in fact, the Harding administration tried to pass a permanent trade tariff um, so that, you know, it could have saved Donald Trump the trouble um, if Harding had, had had his way. And um, And that phrase economic nationalism... Um, used in 1918 in these debates about the Treaty of Versailles uh, is indeed what Steve Bannon says that he stands for. He has been quoted over and over again saying that he believes in economic nationalism. So um, these are indeed old ideas, and, and America First has always been associated with them, and they are related to nativism and xenophobia. They've never been – they're the flip side of the same coin. So on the one hand, we don't trust – Uh, We don't trust foreigners and we want to put our economic interests first and we don't think that cooperation is the way to do that. We don't think enlightened self-interest is the way to do that. We just think we have to circle the wagons and protect our own. And by the same token, in order to circle the wagons and protect our own, we need to keep other people out as well. And so those two do tend to travel in tandem. When you have an America First movement throughout the 20th century, every time that that arose, it was in association with anti-immigration policies and with protectionist economic policies.
0: And and the the Johnson-Reed Act of 1924, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Which also was... Uh, explicitly associated with America First when it was debated on the, uh, on the floor of Congress. Um, and, and Coolidge, when he signed it into law, said that it was, uh, in the name of America First. And the Johnson-Reed Act of, of 1924 was the, um, the most restrictive immigration, uh, um, act in American history. Um, it was, it set very stringent quotas based on ethnic origin. It's also known as the National Origins Act. So the idea was that um, there were certain countries that were more desirable than others, and it shouldn't surprise anybody who knows their history um, when they hear that the more desirable countries were Northern European and the less desirable countries were Southern European, Eastern European, African, and Asian. Um, in other words, it was an implicitly and sometimes explicitly white supremacist uh, movement. It was associated with an idea called Nordicism, Um, the idea that Nordic peoples, which didn't just mean people from Norway, but meant anybody from Northern Europe, again, broadly Caucasian, Anglo-Saxon, white, blonde, um, you know, blue-eyed. And so basically they used Nordic the same way that the, that the Nazis used Aryan. Um, so then, and you know, with that looseness that they used Aryan, right? What did it really mean? Well, it just meant, you know, white people, ultimately. And, um, and they used Nordic in the same way. And America first was very much a Nordicist, um, movement, it was associated with the idea of the biological superiority of certain races over other ones. And, um, and that's why it was taken up by the, uh, Renaissance Ku Klux Klan at the same time, because of course the second Klan was on the rise in the uh, late teens and early twenties as well. And they saw in America first, um, a, a kind of fig leaf, a, a, a pretext, a, a, a socially acceptable Phrase that sounded benign enough and that had plausible deniability.
0: Now, so that's the motto of the of the, Klux, of the KKK. It's also the motto of the Hearst newspapers.
1: It is indeed, and it was. Um, it was also associated with a couple of other uh kind of what we would call, you know, dog whistle phrases. Um, they said, um, you know, the KKK would march. Um, with banners, and this is from the early 1920s, they would march with banners that said America first, that said 100 percent American, um, that said white supremacy, um, racial uh, race purity. Right. So they were very clear about what they stood for. And they used America first as a as a slogan for um for all of those ideas. And, and it's important to remember that although the KKK was a secret organization, it was not a fringe organization, it was not marginal in the 1920s. They got an enormous amount of political power. And, uh, you know, they boasted in the mid-20s that they had mayors from Portland, Maine to Portland, Oregon. And that, you know, and of course, they had the greatest concentration of membership in the Midwest, not in the deep South. So they had, you know, in Indiana, uh, members of the KKK um in the twenties would, you know, kind of march with their with their hoods off and their robes open, you know, kind of proudly announcing that they were members of the Klan. And um and it's and so I think it's really important to recognize that this phrase America First, um, as I say, it always is tied up with xenophobia, nativism, and with the idea that a certain a certain type of white American identity is is the only type of America that will be permitted that that's what's going to define America and that nobody else counts quite as much
0: all right so uh, across the across the hundred years then of the two phrases America first more or less holds its shape uh, from then to now some slight amendment and revision but more or less holds steady but the phrase American dream if it goes through changes and evolves i mean in the first nineteen hundred nineteen twenty it's moral idealism and and then in the twenties uh, what happens it, it begins to shift yeah. toward toward money
1: yeah exactly um, and you know it's not surprising that you know since it is talking about a national value system that as those values start to shift, so would the phrase um and indeed in the in the twenties as you say i mean it's a it's the obviously the time of of the boom um people were declaring that prosperity was here to stay, and the American dream increasingly started to take a material shape um to look like having you know a nice car and a nice house and and that maybe you could get you know not just not just be be reasonably prosperous but that you could be filthy rich um and that that starts to that these kind of you know grandiose dreams start to start to take hold and it's a it's a um, a decade that was characterized by a very uh, explicit um, worshiping of business, um, and I and I don't use the word worshiping there as a as a loose metaphor. I mean it quite specifically. It was um, P- Coolidge said things like you know uh, um, a factory is like I think he said it was like the altar of a temple, and the, the people who worked there went to worship there. And um, you know people said the 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 religion of America is business. This is our this is our value system. Well, I mean you know
0: all you have to do is walk around America. I mean the banks are all. Look like uh, Greek temples
1: well exactly, exactly <laughs> and it is a temple of business, right, and that's why um, you know in say, you know I've already mentioned it, but it tends to come up a lot in the context of the American dream, um, the great Gatsby, in that famous sentence where Fitzgerald says that Jay Gatsby is, uh, is his father's son right he's an American you know he's the, he's the son of an American god, and he says so he must be about his father 's business. The service of a vast, vulgar, and meretricious beauty. And, you know, that emphasis on the word meretricious there, you know, the idea that something is, is, you know, superficially beautiful, but actually tawdry and rotten at its core and worthless. Um, that, that increasingly America was worshiping the wrong thing. Um, and that's why I think it, it's a really telling detail at the end of The Great Gatsby, you know, that famous ending of the novel that so many people remember. But in my experience, they tend to Misremember it, and to think that when Nick goes out onto Long Island and he imagines the first settlers coming uh, to land on America and those sailors, he people tend to think he's remembering the Puritans. Um, but of course, Fitzgerald knew his history, and he knew very well that the, the Puritans didn't land on Long Island. Um, and what he has Nick imagine is the Dutch sailors who landed on Long Island, the first uh, the first uh, um, Dutch uh, uh, immigrants and that, of course, is to make that association with mercantilism. It's precisely not the people who came here for religious belief that Fitzgerald wants us to remember, but the people who came seeing America as a get-rich-quick scheme. And and that, and that in the 20s, um, Fitzgerald's not alone in this, Sinclair Lewis writes about it as well. Many of the great writers of the time uh, saw that this was happening, and, um, and, and they write furious satires Of the way that America is shrinking its ambitions and degrading its aspirations and its ideals um, to the point where all it's doing is chasing filthy lucre. All
0: right, so, but that's pretty much where we are now. I mean, I mean, I mean, Reagan. Part of his campaign is he wants to make America great again as the place where somebody can always get rich. I mean, that was one of his appeals, and and that's the same pitch that was is is made by trump trump i mean made it very clear that from his point of view money was the good the true and the beautiful (laughs) and so all right i mean mean, (laughs) what uh, conclusion you draw from from the uh following the progress of these two phrases over the you know over 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 a century, I mean well it?
1: there there are I think there are several i mean um for me, one of them is that um that to realize you know I hear people saying um things like you know America's never been as divided as it is today, and i and I sympathize with that feeling I understand why people feel that way, and certainly the nation is in a very divided and very polarized state, and nobody sane would dispute that but um, but it isn't true that it's never been this divided before. I mean, after all, we did fight a civil war. Um, so, you know, the America has always uh, um, struggled with these divisions. And, um, you know, and I think there are a couple of reasons for that. I mean, one of the ways that I think about it is that, and you know, if you think about our, we have we're a country with two Genesis myths, not one but two. We have the Pilgrims landing at Plymouth Rock, and then we have the Founding Fathers writing the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And the and one of those is a theocratic, you know, explicitly theocratic story about um, a particular kind of religious belief um, about the Puritanism that would evolve into Evangelicalism, and uh, and, and a society built on that and run by that by that authority um, and then you have the the America that's established out of the liberal enlightenment European continental tradition with you know Jefferson Madison and Hamilton drawing on the thinking of continental philosophers. And those two stories of America are both legitimate and they're pretty hard to reconcile, you know? I mean, they're not quite mutually exclusive, but they're close to mutually exclusive. And so, you know, I feel like those divisions in America, we've never, we have never been a United States. There's a reason why the Constitution says we're moving toward a more perfect union, that, that sense that it will never be perfected. Um, so I think it's instructive and in some weird ways, weirdly hopeful. I don't, I'm not urging complacency on the contrary, but, To realize that we've always been divided and we've all, and we've had these, you know, moments where the rifts really show themselves and the, and the, and the chasms are deep. And then we've had to find some way to come together again. And the way that we have done that in the past um, has, you know, basically it has kind of, in my view, it's a, it's a little bit oversimplified, but you can fairly say that these, um, that these debates and conflicts and, and divisions basically boil down to a kind of America first view of the United States and an American dream view of the United States as a as a as a liberal democracy and, and liberal, I mean, in the 18th century sense, um, not as opposed to conservative, but a, a, but to mean free, right, a free democracy um, of, of self-governing people. And um and and that, that American dream is what we have to keep recovering. I mean it, it seems to me important that the you know, the, the the man who popularized the phrase the American dream, James Shuslow Adams, he said that it that every generation would need to renew it. And I think he's right, and I think we lost sight of that. And you know, you, you can say, Well, Reagan did that in the eighties and it's like, Okay, well Reagan did that in the eighties, but what's our American dream?
0: Right. I mean I, I I agree with you. I mean every generation has to Reinvent what it means by the American dream. What it, what is its ideal? I mean, I mean, the American dream is never, you know, a fact. It, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a working toward uh, an ideal and, and every generation has to renew it. And, and, and the, uh, we haven't, as far as I can see, we haven't done that for the last 50 odd years
1: that 's my view as well, and so that 's what I think is that it is that it, it sort of it, it, it gradually kind of fossilized and in and in fossil in, you know it, it didn 't keep adapting um, to changing value systems and um, and we just inherited this one version of it that told us this is what you 're supposed to want and this is what you 're supposed to dream and and one of the things I say in the book is I feel as an American like that means I inherited this diminished Dream. I inherited this kind of world of diminished possibilities. And it was amazing to go back in the past and discover that their idea of the American dream was what we would call social democracy. And, you know, and, and one of the conclusions I draw from this, I should say that I think is really important is, you know, I can't count the number of times that I've heard, um, you know, right wing pundits and, and commentators say that. The American dream is intrinsically, inherently about free market capitalism and that any curbs on that um, are antithetical to the American dream, that it is that the American dream is inimical to any kind of regulated capitalism or to any kind of social democracy, any kind of welfare state. Well, historically, that just isn't true because the American dream as a phrase was coined in order to advocate precisely that position that comes from the left and from a progressive position. And I think it's really important that we know that. Um, A, in order to combat that kind of uh, um, deeply partisan and inaccurate history, but also I find that liberating to be able to say, well, we can reclaim these older meanings. We don't necessarily have to invent a whole new one, although we could as well. But to say, actually, Maybe the answer is already there, and the answer is there in our history. And and that's one of the reasons why I, I turn at the end of the book to a remarkable journalist who very few people remember anymore called Dorothy Thompson, um, because she, she was a, um, a hugely influential columnist. She was uh, called this the uh, second most uh, admired woman in America after Eleanor Roosevelt and um and in the thirties, she was really the voice of the anti fascist cause. She kept warning America it can happen here. Um, she had been in Europe during the rise of fascism. She'd watched it. She understood it deeply and, uh, and profoundly. And she kept warning America that it could happen here. And this is what it would look like if it happened here and how we ought to fight it. And she thought we should fight it with the American dream as she understood it, that older dream, the American creed, um, that dream of democracy and equality and justice, those ideals. And, um, and, and I find reading her, A, very inspiring, but, but, um, but be it, you know it's almost like an instruction manual. It's like here's here's how you fight here's how you fight incipient fascism. Here's how you fight authoritarianism. And one of the really remarkable things that she said in the late 30s, was she said, you know, one of the questions about whether um, about whether fascism can take hold in America, she said it will depend a lot about what the politicians on the right do. And she said if the politicians on the right decide that it's more important to them to defeat liberals than to defeat fascism. They will make common cause with fascists just in order to defeat the left. And she said that's exactly what happened in Germany, and it's exactly what happened in Italy. And if that happens in the United States, it will be well on the road to fascism. And, you know, those are kind of chilling words to read right now. Um, I mean, you know, we're speaking indeed as, um, as there is, you know, testimony about a Supreme Court nomination, um, you know, happening and, and these, these, uh, these very alive questions about the, about the role of Republican Congress in upholding what, you know, many of us see as deeply, 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 uh, um, problematic to say the least. Um, choices by the current president, you know, to declare that, that, journalists are the enemy of this state. Um, and to have a, a to have a conservative, so-called conservative, uh, a government, to have conservative lawmakers, um, you know, go along with that just to stay in power. Um, to me, that's exactly what Dorothy Thompson was warning against. They would rather defeat Democrats than defeat fascism. And she watched that happen across Europe and she said, of course it can happen in the United States. So for me, you know, there are all kinds of reasons to study history. On the one hand, it gives you hope. On the other hand, of course, it's frightening. But I think most of us are trying to make sense of what's happening. And it's not alarmist to recognize these parallels and to say it doesn't have to be identical. Um, you know, he doesn't have to be Adolf Hitler for us to say that this is unacceptable and um, and indeed that Hitler didn't start out Hitler. Um and my personal feeling as a citizen and as a voter is that I'm not prepared to give him the chance to find out whether he's like Hitler. Um, all the evidence I have is that, you know, we should stop him while we can. Um, but, you know, the the this is what both Thompson and um, her then husband Sinclair Lewis, in his very interesting and prophetic novel, It Can't Happen Here, um, from 1935, Both of them saw that an American fascism would not be the same as European fascism. Of course it wouldn't be. And a 2018 fascism isn't going to be identical to a 1935 fascism. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a very strong family resemblance that we need to take very seriously. And it is only, I think, history that can teach us How to do that, what the warning signs are, why we should take them seriously, but also what we can do about it, how to rally the forces, how to fight for democracy, how to renew those ethical values that you were talking about and, um, and how to, and how to, and how to remind ourselves that America was not just supposed to dream bigger, but it was supposed to dream better. And, and in my view, again, as an, as an American citizen, I feel like that's what we've lost sight of and what we need to, we need urgently.
0: To find it. one of the many reasons to read your fine book. And thank you very much, Sarah Churchwell, for talking to us today about your new book, Behold America, with the subtitle The Entangled History of America First and the American Dream.
1: Oh, well, thank you very much
0: for having me. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.